This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land. The deadly shootout that's left six people dead in Queensland's Western Downs has stunned nearby communities where grieving locals are struggling to understand why it happened. Two police officers and a member of the public were ambushed and shot in what the police union is calling ruthless and cold-blooded murder. The shooters and the victims were known in the nearby towns and there are now calls for more mental health support. John Daly reports. For many locals, there were few signs of the chaos to come. David Maynard remembers chatting with gunman Nathaniel Train outside the supermarket in the town of Tara. I even spoke to Nathan about two or three days ago out the front of food works because I do horse rescues out here and he asked me if I had room for any more horses and I said, yeah, just inbox me. Let me know what you need. And now we got this, so I don't know what to think of it all. On Monday night, Nathaniel and his brother Gareth Train gunned down two police officers and a neighbour, Alan Dare, on their property at Weambilla. This doesn't make sense. Are we in a dream here or what, mate? <laughs> I, I really just don't comprehend any of it. The families, the, what, what the hell? Four police had gone to the property looking for missing former school principal Nathaniel Train when police say the brothers opened fire, killing Tara-based constables Matthew Arnold and Rachel McCrow. David Maynard says neighbour Alan Dare was well regarded in the community. I've met him a couple of times and spoken to him a few times in town and, mate, that fellow, he'd give his shirt off his back, you know, to help people. And that's what he would have been doing, going next door to see if everybody was OK. And they shoot him in the back. Specialist police then shot and killed the two brothers and a woman, Stacey Train. The community in Tara is in mourning and David Maynard says the town needs support. Every single person, I did a, we did a one-minute silence thing for the, the, for the police in town and every single person that showed up, you could see in their face, they need to talk. We, we, we desperately need mental health support out here. There's none. Lifeline will offer free counselling at the local neighbourhood centre from today. To the north of Weambilla, residents in the town of Chinchilla are also reeling. Ruth Lindsay is the president of Cup of Kindness, a charity that runs the local mobile soup kitchen that was set up not far from Chinchilla's police station on Monday night. We were actually right on Heaney Street, just out from the police station. So a number of vehicles were, you know, just flying by at a great rate of knots. I was very well aware of my volunteers and um, the people who use our soup kitchen in the fact that they were just horrified um, and, and seeing the looks on their faces like as if they had um, been watching something that wasn't real. Chinchilla's Christmas lights display this Friday night will be turned into a fundraiser. Jean Trelaw lives at a local aged care facility where residents are making rumbles to raise money for the victims' families. We, we were going to make rumbles for Christmas, but we'll be making them now for support the families. She says everyone is struggling to comprehend how this unfolded in a quiet country community. A lot of them have been shocked. Something you don't in, in overseas, in the biggest cities, yes, but here, no. It's, it's so shocking. It's, it's awful. What began as a missing persons investigation has ended as an unfathomable tragedy. John Daly reporting. 
Well, a long and complex police investigation is now trying to unravel how and why a former school principal, his brother and his brother's partner, came to ambush police. Reporter Stephanie Smale is in Brisbane. Stephanie, are police considering whether this was premeditated and fuelled by online conspiracy theories? Well, David, police are really only just beginning the complex and likely gruesome job of piecing together what happened in this horrific incident. They'll be looking at what happened at the property itself. They'll be using tools like the body camera footage taken at the time of the attack. But police say another crucial part of the investigation will be gathering information about the online presence of the attackers, just to try and get an insight into their mindset and to break down why they ambushed and killed these officers and their neighbour. Queensland's Police Commissioner Katerina Carroll will be visiting the families of Constables Matthew Arnold and Rachel McCrow today. She has told the ABC's 7.30 program there are still no obvious reasons behind the attack, but she says police are investigating every avenue, including whether it was a premeditated ambush. We have a little bit more information, obviously, about online presence, uh, where they've worked, what their occupations were. One of the most difficult parts until we really get into the investigation and getting the intelligence that we need, it was senseless, it was callous. It's very difficult at the moment for us to reason with what has happened. There are no obvious reasons, but within the next few days and the next few weeks, I have no doubt that we will come back to you, back to the rest of the people of Queensland, Australia, to give them some insight into what we believe took place. Right, so how are communities in other parts of Queensland responding to these horrific killings? Yeah, the tragedy continues to echo right across the state. In Brisbane, landmarks like the Story Bridge, which is right in the centre of the city, have been lit up in blue and white out of respect for the officers who were killed. And in Brisbane South, a crowd gathered for a sunset vigil at the Callumvale Police Station to pay their respects. So the impact of this deadly attack isn't likely to fade anytime soon, David. Stephanie Smale there. And if you or anyone you know need help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. You've probably noticed it's getting harder to find a GP who bulk bills. Well, official health statistics have confirmed what many people already know, with Medicare data revealing bulk billing rates have dropped between July and September. Doctors argue the reality is even worse than the figures suggest and say if nothing changes, more GPs will be forced to hike up their fees or close their doors, putting pressure on an already overburdened system. Political reporter Stephanie Dalzell has more. For the past three years, Dr Sarah McClay's practice in central Queensland has consistently lost money. Unfortunately, the situation that I'm facing is a situation that most practices are dealing with and I, I don't believe it's going to get better. This year, she stopped bog billing patients and started charging them fees just to keep afloat. We've been in this horrible dance for such a long time where we haven't really been able to prioritise 
what we need as doctors. And I think that's why the, the seesaw has finally tipped and we just can't do it anymore. And now you're seeing this flood of change. An increasing number of doctors are closing their doors, avoiding the GP profession entirely or charging patients more to make ends meet. The latest Medicare statistic showing the bulk billing rate has dropped from 87 to just over 83% between July and September this year. But the president of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, Dr Nicole Higgins, says the figures only show the percentage of services that were bulk billed, not the number of patients who've avoided out-of-pocket costs. We think the real level of bulk billing has dropped to about 66% or two-thirds. Consumers Health Forum CEO Dr Elizabeth Devaney says as fewer GPs bulk bill, many patients will be forced to defer care. That can mean that the, the problem they have, whatever health issue it is, can get worse. Sometimes they feel they have no choice but to seek um, help in other ways, such as go to the emergency department. With a predicted workforce shortage of 11,000 GPs by the end of the decade, doctors have long argued the sector is at breaking point. Money is a huge part of the problem, with the Medicare rebate for a typical GP consultation increasing by just $6 over the past 14 years. Dr Nicole Higgins believes more funding is desperately needed. General practice is in crisis. And we have got less and less doctors wanting to become GPs and less staying in, in the profession because it is undervalued and underfunded. My concern is that the general practice system might collapse unless we get some urgent investment in general practice. In a statement, Federal Health Minister Mark Butler says he's asked his department for more information to obtain a complete picture of the state of bulk billing and he set up a task force to examine some of the issues. The federal government also recently held talks with experts to brainstorm solutions, but diagnosing the problem has been much easier than prescribing a solution, with soaring health costs already putting enormous pressure on an overstretched budget. Stephanie Dalzell with that report. The soaring cost of living and frequent natural disasters are driving so many people to seek help from charities that many of the services can no longer meet the demand. A new report has found a third of providers have turned people away, needing help with food, housing, mental health and domestic violence, as Jane Barden reports. Until recently, Melbourne mum Monty Weber and her teenage daughter could just get by. We don't get fresh fruit and veg much anymore unless we get it on clearance. We really don't buy much meat. We're basically living on pasta, rice, tin fruit and veg, anything that's cheap. She's on a disability pension after giving up work as a chef and a cleaner because of a heart condition. Now her daughter has turned 18, they've lost her family payment and can't afford their rent and food. We're living on $960 a fortnight and the rent is $800 a fortnight. Then you've got utilities, your power, gas, your water, petrol, medication. The Salvation Army has helped Mandy with her rent and given her a $150 food voucher, but she can't get further assistance. Because they're so overwhelmed and so... So like, it's just a huge waiting list to get through to them. And I can't ring again now for six months. How do you feel about trying to survive and not going forward? Oh, we're not going to. Uh, my daughter's going to have to go into a youth housing transitional unit. She wants to be an apprentice electrician. She's done a Cert 3 while she looks for work and everything. And I'm going to be living in my car. 
A report commissioned by the Australian Council of Social Service has found charities and community groups can't keep up with the demand fuelled by the rising cost of living, repeated disasters and Christmas. In Darwin, Salvation Army manager Jamie Lee Barnard is also overwhelmed. In the last couple of weeks to the lead up to Christmas, we have found that there aren't many accommodation options available for our rough sleepers. A lot of the hostels are all booked out um, and as a result, our rough sleepers are stuck out um, in the heat. It means more people like Noel Nabagayu are sleeping in the city's parks. Like I'm worried for getting hot and couldn't find a shelter and the shade you know, and the wind. ACOS Deputy Chief Executive Edwina MacDonald says the demand is unprecedented. A third of the service providers said that they're having to turn people away due to lack of capacity. And shockingly, only 3% of the 1,500 people we've surveyed have said that their services can always meet the demand. Now in her early 50s, Mandy Weber says she never thought her life would come to this. I have no super safe because of all the years of different jobs where the super's chewed away due to all the fees. I trusted the government that there would be suitable housing, enough money to support me to get back on my feet. The federal government in the last budget kept saying we can't put up welfare payments and we can't put up disability payments because it would fuel inflation and the budget bottom line can't afford it. What do you feel when you hear those kinds of comments from the government? I uh, I honestly think the government's view on the world is distorted because if you get people into affordable housing and people with enough money to live, it's going to improve their health, it's going to improve their mental health and then they get back in the workforce and they go off the payments. So they're not achieving anything by making us live way below poverty line. That's Melbourne resident Mandy Webber ending Jane Barden's report. Fiji is holding its third democratic election since the rewriting of its constitution in 2013, and it's set to be the biggest yet. But there are tight restrictions on what the media can report due to a campaign blackout that's in place until voting wraps up tonight. Reporter Marion Farr is in Suva, where voting has just started. Good morning, David. Well, about 600,000 Fijians are due to cast their votes today at more than 1,400 locations right across the country. But unlike elections in Australia, there'll be no democracy sausage when they emerge from the ballot box, and that's um, due to some very tight restrictions, which mean that there can be no campaign flyers, no party merchandise, and even no free food and drink anywhere within 300 metres of a polling centre today. So the voting process will be quite different to what Aussies are used to. And these rules, we're told, are designed to give citizens a bit of breathing space when they go to vote. The press is also under these tight restrictions on what it can report. So what can the media cover today? That's right. So alongside these rules around polling centres, there's also a total campaign blackout that came into effect on Sunday night and continues throughout today until voting closes at 6pm local time. And until then, the media is banned from broadcasting or publishing any political campaign advertisement, debate, opinion or interview on any election issue or with any political party or candidate. So we can report very general information about how the election will run and give some basic context, as I'm doing now, but that's about it. And some local media organisations have even decided to halt their election coverage completely to avoid sort of breaking any rules and getting themselves in hot water. 
Um, these restrictions, interestingly, extend to politicians and citizens as well who are not allowed to engage in anything that could be construed as campaigning. And candidates have even been told to deactivate their social media accounts and take down any previous campaign posts that were up online. Wow, so politicians not allowed to campaign. How many candidates are actually running in this election? More than 340 candidates from nine political parties plus two independents are in today's race, which makes it Fiji's largest election so far, and they're vying for 55 seats in Parliament. So when voters head to the ballot box today, they'll have to tick, circle or cross uh, the number allocated to the candidate that they want to vote for. And each citizen has only one vote. And it's an open voting system, so citizens can vote for any candidate of their choice in the country, regardless of where they live. Now, in terms of results, it's been quite hard to get a sense of how things uh, will go today because Fiji doesn't have opinion polls. So it's only when the voting stops that we'll really start to see um, how things go and, and what the outcome's like. Reporter Marion Farr in Suva. The founder of the collapsed cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, has appeared in a court in the Bahamas, charged by the US with money laundering, wire fraud and conspiracy. The appearance of Sam Bankman-Fried came a day after his arrest in the Caribbean country from where he ran his crypto empire. In Washington, the company's CEO has told a congressional committee FTX was run by a small group of unsophisticated individuals virtually without any controls or paperwork. North America correspondent Barbara Miller reports. The reign of the man known as the Crypto King is over. A month after his FTX exchange filed for bankruptcy, he's been charged with eight criminal counts by US authorities, including wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. Damian Williams is the US attorney for the Southern District of New York. Bankman Fried and his co-conspirators stole billions of dollars from FTX customers. He used that money for his personal benefit including to make personal investments and to cover expenses and debts. Lawyers for the 30-year-old, once seen as a kind of wonderkind of the Bitcoin world, have told a court in the Bahamas he will not waive his right to an extradition hearing, meaning the process could take weeks or months. The committee will come to order. In Washington, D.C., the House Financial Services Committee had been hoping to hear from Bankman-Fried today. His arrest prevented that. But Chair Maxine Waters appeared to have formed firm views on the matter regardless. I'm so deeply troubled to learn how common it was for Bankman-Fried and FTX employees to steal from the cookie jar of customer funds to finance their lavish lifestyles. The chair's comments were backed up by the man appointed CEO after FTX's collapse last month, John Ray III. I've just never seen an utter lack of record keeping. Absolutely no internal controls whatsoever. John Ray told the committee Sam Bankman Free co mingled assets of FTX and his hedge fund, Alameda Research, and approved loans for himself with no oversight. Absolute concentration of control in the hands of a small group of grossly inexperienced and unsophisticated individuals. Mr Ray's testimony and the criminal charges are at odds with a script reported by Forbes of the testimony Bankman-Fried had intended to give, in which the former CEO says, in colourful language, that he stuffed up and took his eye off the ball and should have managed risk better. The bankruptcy proceedings in the US are separate to those running in Australia in connection with the Australian arm of FTX. Yes, our filing occurred on uh, November 11. 
and uh, there was other filings that had occurred shortly before. John Ray says administrators in different jurisdictions will collaborate to try and recover as much as they can of the estimated $10 billion lost. But he's warned investors that not all the money will ever be recovered. This is Barbara Miller in Washington reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Looting, trashing of properties, ramming of cars. A town where the crime is so severe, police have to close down the centre of the city. Today, investigative reporter Jane Barden on the crime wave sweeping the Northern Territory, why it's happening and what's being done to stop it. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.